Good morning. Really good to see all of you here, and uh, we have some visitors with us today, and uh, got to meet some of you, not all of you. I hope I get a chance to meet all of you before today's over, but very glad that you're here to worship with us. We're continuing a series uh, that John started earlier in the year that fits with the Christmas season, concerns a prophecy in Isaiah, the ninth chapter and verse six, that says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. We're going to talk this morning about that term, the Everlasting Father. This is one of the names that uh, the prophet said that Jesus would be called during his ministry. And uh, when the prophet spoke these names, he wasn't saying that these were a name like a name that's given to someone when they're born and the name that they always call someone if they want to address them. Uh, these deal with uh, the character qualities of a person. And the prophet didn't say that these were to be his names, but that he would be called these names. So we see then that the Messiah has these character qualities of an everlasting father. And this is one of the things that I want to talk about today. And, and I want to talk to about two things. Number one, I want us all to just feel deeper than we have up until today about what a wonderful father God is. And the blessing that he is an everlasting father. I, I hope that our, our appreciation and our love for that just grows during this. But I also want to talk to the fathers because there's some very important things that we need to point out about fathers, and uh, we need to compare ourselves, as always, to our example. So these names refer more to the character qualities, the kind of person that Jesus would be, and the benefits that we can expect from him as being an everlasting father. Now, the promised Messiah being called Everlasting Father means then that he would have the godly fatherly qualities of comfort, encouragement, stability, protection, wisdom, provision, love, and security. And all of these character qualities apply especially to what the father and what a father should be. But there are a few issues looking at this scripture when I first, John asked me to preach on this. And I want to talk about some of these issues that I hope will help us understand and appreciate this more. Uh, first is that Jesus will be called the everlasting Father. Now, we typically think of God as the Father, and Jesus is the Son. And Jesus himself referred to God as his Father and encouraged us in his teachings to think of God as our Father who is in heaven. So how can Jesus be referred to as the everlasting Father? Well, <laughs> this is both one of the mysteries and one of the glories of the Trinity. For us to understand God's, God's fatherly love, uh, He did it by giving His one and only Son to save us. So the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, revealed themselves in these relationships so that uh, their created beings 
could be able to understand their Creator's love. But now with the Trinity, there is a strongly established oneness in the Trinity. Even though the Scriptures say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They also say in John the first chapter, verse 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And their oneness is so complete that they are one in will, one in purpose, one in possessing all of the same attributes, one in love, one in personality, one in holiness, one in power, one in every way conceivable. And you would never see either one of them acting contrary to the will of the other. Jesus would never say, I know God wants this, but I'm going to do this, huh? They are so one, it just won't happen. Now, this is why God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, referring to Jesus' birth, saying that a virgin would conceive and bear his son, and she will call him Emmanuel. Now, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, but he's referring to Jesus. Now, neither Jesus nor the Holy Spirit is less than God in any way. Let me ask you a question. Who is it, which one of the Trinity is living in us? Holy Spirit? Okay, but now let's look at these scriptures, and, and this brings together this oneness that exists in the Trinity. We can see here then in Romans the eighth chapter and verse nine, Paul is speaking to Christians and he says, you however are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And anyone that does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And he's not talking about two different spirits, that God has a spirit and Jesus has a spirit. This is the amazing thing about the oneness in the, in the Trinity. But he goes on to say this, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's God, is living in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So we see here, who's it referring to? When you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not possessing something that is subpar to God or subpar to Jesus. They are all identical and one in every way. And because of this oneness, Christ claims us as both his brothers and sisters and also his children. In Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 11, it says, so now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among the assembled people. 
But in verse 13, he also said, I will put my trust in him, I and the children God has given me. So all the qualities of God as Father are also contained in Jesus as Father, and both are everlasting. And that's a blessing. But here's another issue. That could be good or bad depending on one's concept of a father. Now we're going to look first of all, how did the Jews, the Israelites, regard God as a father? Uh, for understanding the scriptures here, it's always uh, important that we first have to understand what it was supposed to mean to the original readers. So did the Israelites regard God as father? And if so, did they regard him as a good father? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God was more like the lion than the lamb that John's been preaching on here. His judgments were often severe and, and, and harsh. Uh, when Israel was unfaithful and rebellious, the lion in God's personality showed up. But he was imagined as being kind of aloof because he only spoke directly to certain individuals. And when he wanted to speak to all of the people, you, you didn't see him, he spoke to a prophet, and the prophet spoke to the people on God's behalf. So, though God desired to be regarded as a father, after Adam and Eve and the fall, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses and the law, and all the way up until Christ, the Israelites' concept of God was that he was more God than Father. Now, they saw his miraculous power over nature, his miraculous power over life, and his power over their enemies, and this evoked a lot of fear and awe in their hearts. But only a few of the Old Testament characters really related to God as Father. They appreciated his protection, his provisions, his deliverances from the enemies. But because of his commands and his judgments, his strict, burdensome laws, and his often misinterpreted aloofness, he was often viewed as a bad God that was too strict, too harsh. And this would lead to resentment and rebellion on the part of the people. Now, we can look through the Old Testament Scriptures and we can see God tried. He tried to present Himself as a Father. We, we look at the Scripture in Hosea, the 11th chapter. He says this, uh, when Israel, referring to the nation Israel, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love, and to them I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. He was trying. Near the end of Moses' life, as he finished writing the law from the beginning to the end, he assembled all the elders of the 12 tribes and all of their officials, 
and reminded them of God's faithful care and his provision for Israel. And he asked them this, is this the way you repay the Lord? You foolish and unwise people, is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Well, I don't think they really recognized him much as a father. He was a god. They had laws to keep. He could be angry, and he could be displeased. But Jesus was going to change all of this. In the last days of God's final revelation in sending Christ, God goes all out to reveal himself as a loving father by sending his one and only son to fulfill the law and to atone for our sins through his sacrifice and to not only restore our relationship with God, but to give us a new relationship with God as his children. Well, think about this. You know, in his teaching, Jesus doesn't hide the lion part of who God is. He does not soft-pedal God's commands or, or try to explain them away. Commandments were still commandments. Sin was still sin. But Jesus focused more on revealing the lamb aspect of God's personality. And when he taught on God's desire to save us, Christ revealed God's love, his mercy, and his grace. If you follow Jesus' teaching, you know, began there with that Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of that sermon, Jesus refers to God as the Lord and refers to him as God. But towards the end, as he goes on and starts dealing with more personal things, he starts referring to him as your heavenly Father, your Father in heaven, and your Father. And he's introducing here a whole new concept to these people. This is who God wants to be. And then when he teaches them how they should pray, he doesn't say that they should begin addressing God with all of these superlatives and saying, oh God, the omnipresent, the omniscient, uh, the uh, all-powerful, everything. No, he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Wow. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants. Yes, he appreciates our respect for him as God, but he loves and longs for this relationship as our Father. Now, being the creator and the sovereign of the universe inspires us to worship because of his majesty and his power. But the greatest desire and greatest joy that God has is to be our Father. He created us in His image so that He could have fellowship with us. The Apostle Paul explains it this way, and it's beautiful. Romans, the eighth chapter, he says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term that is an endearment term 
for the father. It'd be like saying dad, or even for the younger ones, daddy. We have that intimacy privilege with God to address him like that. But he goes on and says this, now if we are children, going on to more of the blessings, uh, well, it says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Now here's the catch then that we need to deal with. And fathers, here's where I want you to listen and examine yourself. What kind of father are you in comparison to God as a father? The word father can have both good and bad connotations for us. And it depends on our individual concept of the father that's derived by the relationship that we had with our earthly father, the one that we grew up with. And I'm sure that all of us know many stories of good fathers and bad fathers. And if you had a bad father, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. If you had a good father, you can understand some things. Sharon and I were both blessed with good fathers. But I want to tell you how some of that came about. It came about from lessons that we learned from our fathers who learned lessons from their fathers that they did not want to replicate in any way. Sharon's father, Harry O'Brien, learned how to be a good father by experiencing the bad example and the horrible consequences of a bad father. Harry's father was a gambler and not a very good one. And so the family was often short of money to pay bills. And yet this man, when he sat down to eat, the good pieces of meat go to me. I get all of the food that I want first. You kids wait to fill your plates till I get what I want. Can you imagine? There were seven kids, four daughters, three sons. And this man committed incest with all four daughters. And all four of those daughters ended up going through extensive counseling after they got married. One of those daughters was institutionalized. She just, because of the damage done to her, could not exist in an intimate marriage relationship. Now, worse than that, Harry and I had something in common. He, he loved horses. I do too, grew up with him. Harry didn't get to. But Harry wanted one so badly. And he went to his dad this one day and he said, Dad, could you buy me a horse? And his dad says, I'll tell you what. If you will get enough money to build a corral and a shed with a stall and get enough food to last through the winter and buy a saddle, a blanket, and a bridle, I'll buy you a horse. Really? Okay. And he went after it. He worked for over two years 
finding scrap lumber wherever he could. Neighbors would help him with that. They'd give him extra money for odd jobs that he did for them. And he worked and worked and worked until he got that corral and the shed and the stall built and had the food and had the bridle saddled and blanket. And he came to his dad and he said, Dad, come here. I want to show you something. I've got it all. Here it is. He says, now you can buy me that horse. And his dad said, I never intended to buy you a horse. I just wanted you to stay busy and keep out of trouble. And turned around and walked off. Can you imagine? Wow. Now, in spite of his mistreatment, there were several times that Harry tried to get his father to quit gambling and repent. He didn't even know about the incest till after his sisters were married. But Harry was going to church. He found Christ. He wanted his father to repent and to come to Christ. But his father always said he was just going to wait till he was on his deathbed. And when he was on his deathbed, then he'd say, I'll tell God I'm sorry then, and God's a loving God, and God will forgive me. He never got that opportunity. One night as he was walking across the street on his way to gamble, he got hit by a car, died instantly. Well, let me tell you about my dad and some things that he learned about his father uh, that he did not pass on to us. Because there, there are these extremes of bad fathers, but, but some fathers aren't quite <laughs> that bad, but they still fall short in some real important areas. There are non-supportive fathers who are never there for their children. Now, my dad was very athletic, especially in basketball and tennis. And in junior college, he was the second leading scorer in the nation in basketball. Got a scholarship to Oklahoma State. But his father never attended one sporting event that his son was in. He said, told his son, he said, it's a waste of time. Never showed up. All three of my brothers and I <laughs> played every sport we could, and my dad was there for every one of them, cheering us on. What kind of fathers are we being? Fathers, it's important that you present a good example of a father. And here's why. The problem for children with bad fathers is that if or when their children get introduced to God as our Father in heaven, there are immediate and often lasting negative impressions of what kind of father God is. Even after becoming Christians, children and adults may still view God as a bad father, especially when their prayers don't go answered or don't get answered. They may think that God's just like dad. He never keeps his promises. Or when life gets difficult and bad things happen, they feel like God's mad at me. He's punishing me and sometimes overly punishing me just like my dad did when he wasn't pleased with me or when I got him angry. But besides the sins and shortcomings and bad fathers, we've got other problems in our society. How are our young people reacting 
to considering God or Christ as a father based on the entertainment media's representation of fathers. You ever think about that? Do you know what I'm saying? Now, when I was growing up, and I'm going to date myself here, how, how many remember the sitcom, uh, um, oh, come on, Dave, think of this. Father Knows Best. Father Knows Best, okay? Got some others my age here. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver, you know. Okay, the dad was good. Boy, he was the stability in the family. And, and just a very admirable man, and all the kids looked up to him. Well, it's not so much that way anymore. Their fathers in those sitcoms were worthy of respect, they were wise, they had good qualities, and the comedy in the sitcoms was just comical situations and, and humorous happenings. Not so today. The sitcoms today, the fathers are bigots, idiots, illogical, lazy, irresponsible, bullies, not worthy of respect and emulations, just buffoons to be laughed at. Think about it. Do you see this? Now, we could say, well, that's the media. Let's go a little bit deeper. I think it's Satan being involved there in our society. Why? Because he wants to destroy this concept of a good, wonderful father. Because that's who God is. Who is the hero in most of these sitcoms? It's the mom. Now, I'd be the first to say, oh, praise God for mothers. I, I think they're wonderful. But when you take this away, and the mom is the head of the family, and the mom is the spiritual head, and the mom is the stability and everything else like this, and dad's still a problem, then it affects the concept that the children have of father and our God. Now, whether one's earthly father was good or bad, we need to learn a lot more about our Father in heaven. If your earthly father was bad, and you have a lot to learn, you also have a lot to accept and believe about God as your father. And even those of us who were blessed with a good father know they were still not perfect. And, and we can't judge God by the same imperfections that we see in our earthly fathers. We need to study the Scriptures to learn what kind of father Jesus and God are, especially because their role as father is everlasting. Now, to me, that brings comfort. I hope it does to you. But remember the first part of this message, I pointed out that the names Jesus would be called referred to his character qualities and the benefits of the person that he is, a person who would provide comfort, encouragement, stability, protection, wisdom, provision, love, and security. And all of these character qualities describe the Father that God is, the Father that Jesus is. But you know, in, in the midst of our own individual spiritual warfare, Satan will often try to cause us to doubt God's love. You ever feel that? God, why'd you forsake me? Why aren't you answering my prayers? What's going on, God? Why are you mad at me? Why'd you let this happen? And I think we need to look again at the exhortation given to us by the writer of Hebrews. 
Look at this. It says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses a son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Awesome. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God is treating you as children. So how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Now these words describe good fathers that we've been talking about. But fathers, are you being the kind of father that will help your children perceive of God as a good father? Now, I've already said I was blessed with a good father. I want to share a little bit with you about how easy he made it for me. <laughs> Not easy at the time, okay? Yeah, discipline wasn't always wonderful for me, but nevertheless, uh, I had my share of punishments, I had my share of whippings, but before every punishment, I got a stern lecture explaining why what I did was wrong, what I should have done that was right, and then he explained to me the motive for the punishment that I was going to give. He said, I don't want you to grow up to be a man that does those kind of things. It was for my good. And then he would give a warning, never do those things again. Many times after the lecture, I would also get a whipping too. But I knew what I did was wrong, and I understood that doing wrong had consequences that I did not want to suffer again. And the great part was that after the whipping, Dad would always take me in his arms and assure me that I was punished because I was loved and it was in my best interest to become a man that he wanted me to be. Now, fathers, we need to follow God's example. I'm not saying that my dad was the prime example, but I'll tell you what, it sure helped me to understand God. But what we want to do is learn from God, all the qualities of God as a father. And I want to encourage you, don't lose the love and respect from your children. First, follow Christ's example in living so, so you can show your children the spiritual qualities that you want them to develop. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And you can say to your children, follow me. This is how I'm trying to live. I want you to try to live in this same way. And second, men, I want you to really work at being the spiritual leader in the home. And in love, I want you to preserve the moral integrity of your home and show your children how Christ loves the church by the way you love your wife. 
we oftentimes don't realize that that's an example of the church. And we can teach our kids a lot about the church through our married life as well. But strive to let the atmosphere in your home be a foretaste of heaven when they will live with their everlasting Father who is perfect and loving, righteous and holy in every way. Let them see in you that the more spiritually mature we become, the more childlike we become in submitting to the Father and letting Him be Father and letting us be sons, obedient sons. And let your children see in you the best example of what the love of the everlasting Father will be like. Model that love for them and assure them that their Father in heaven will far outdo you and it will be everlasting. I long for heaven. We've had a foretaste of our Father in heaven here. God's a good Father. And it's going to be wonderful to just live forever experiencing that love even much more so than we do here and now. Jesus, our everlasting Father. God, our everlasting Father. Teach your children what that everlasting Father is like. Now I know this isn't quite the same type of sermon to say, okay, we're open now for you to make a decision. Maybe just right there where you're sitting, you're a dad and you say, whoo, boy, hit me right between the eyes. I've really got some changing to do. That's okay. You can sit right where you are, stand right where you are, and you can say, God, forgive me. God, help me to be a better example of you as a father. But maybe you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, here's the thing. It's not just wanting to save you from sins and, and, and make it possible for you to go to heaven instead of hell. I hope you caught this. He wants to be your father. And he wants you to be his child. And he's saying, come to me. You might be here and you've attended here many, many times and finally made a decision. I want to be a part of this congregation officially. Very, very simple. Just walk forward while we sing and just say, I want to be a member of this church here. We can take care of that. Just really, really simple. But I want us to just take a minute here, just a few seconds, and just pray and thank God for being such a loving Father. Just recount some of the blessings that you've had because you're His and tell Him thank you. And then just pray about what do I need to do? I know I can improve more. God, would you show me how? Would you show me where? What, do I, what needs to change? And just take this moment to pray as we sing.
And if you have a decision that you'd like to share or you just want to come forward for prayer, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.